This is an SM Media production. Hi folks and welcome to episode 4 of this series of The Rewind right here on SM Media. I'm Scott McPike, it's an absolute pleasure to be your host as always. We are going to talk about what happened in 2004 when Vladimir Romanov, a Lithuanian banker, took control at Hearts during a bad financial time for the club. To join me on this episode to look back at this weird time for Hearts supporters, as Liam Corbett from This Is My Story Pod. Liam, it's a pleasure to welcome you on. Thank you for joining me. No, thanks for having me, my man. Any opportunity to talk about the absolute basket case that was Heart of Midlovian during that time, but also the absolute nutcase that was Vladimir Romanov, I jump at that chance. This is a weird show because Vladimir Romanov's tenure lasts about nine years. I think it's just over nine years, actually. But if we spoke about every Vladimir Romanov Ism that I think if we spoke about every single thing he did, I think we would be here till probably next week because <laughs> there is so much. So what we're we're gonna do the kind of period that's most kind of famous, the the infamous kind of 0506 when George Burley was appointed and just obviously what happened after that, the situation with the kind of how it how it went from so so promising to so bad in the space of a very short time, but to set the scene of this period, where were Hearts before Romanov took over? Hearts, like most Scottish Premier League clubs around about the, the kind of 2003 kind of time, were technically insolvent. There was really, uh, there was really bad financial difficulties for, for that, a lot of clubs in Scottish football, basically due to kind of most of the, the, the TV deal that was built on sand. But it was not a good time for Hearts before Romanov took over, there was a lot of problems financially. Aye, we, like you said, I think the Satanta deal obviously crippled a lot of Scottish football. Hearts at the time had been, we were on a, we were on a bit of a wave after 98, we won the Scottish Cup for yeah. the first time in 36 years and with that we got some external investment from the SMG group. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was about £5 million, £6 million or something they invested into the club. Uh, and as most clubs do when you're you're on a high and you set your, your sights on the horizon, we sort of set our sights on trying to keep up with Celtic and Rangers. Uh, the season, if you remember, the season that Hearts stopped, uh, Celtic stopped Rangers 10 in a row, uh, but also it broke up that nine in a row squad. So Dick Advocat came in. They, I remember famously the papers showed Rangers could have three starting 11s with, you know, millions and millions and millions of pounds worth of talent, your Van Bronckhorst, your De Boer brothers, uh, Tory Andre, Flo, Rod Wallace, all these guys, Marco Negri, mm-hmm. and Hearts sillily tried to, to keep up with it. So we spent the money on transfers. We brought in Gordon Jury, mm-hmm. Gary McSwiggin. We spent money on Gordon Petrich, which will haunt us forever. Uh, spent money on uh, Kevin James, even from... from uh, Falkirk at the yeah, time, afraid, if yeah. I remember. And then, it, like you said, the, the, the deal collapses and Celtic Rangers were spending millions and the idea that anybody outside the Celtic Rangers without, you know, the, the sort of money coming from someone else that could compete was just was just a, a fantasy and, and we really struggled. And at that time, the chairman, Chris Robinson, floated the idea of actually the only way that Hearts can, can survive as if we sell Tynecastle, mm-hmm. the club's home since the day we started, uh, to Cala Homes, I believe it was at the time, mm-hmm. and move move Hearts to Straighton area. I think it was out, out where like Ikea and stuff was. And obviously that kicked off a bit of a, a 10, 15 year period where Hearts in various different stages, fans had to fight to save its club, control its club, stop its club from going insolvent and stuff. So I uh, it was a bit of a it was a bit of a crazy time when when Vladimir Romanov came on and you know it was getting 
very, very vicious with Chris Robinson. You know, there's stories of the team bus being stopped and yeah, fans pulling yeah. pulling him off. There was, his, I think his, his house was set on fire or his garden was set on fire. Folk were, were at his house and it, it was getting it was getting pretty crazy. And I think they sold it, sold the football club to the first crazy person that said, I here, I'll take it. <laughs> And that kind of whole period, like as you say, the kind of Save Our Hearts group was kind of formed around about this point. The, I remember there's some weird kind of stories, as you say, with kind of Chris Robertson. He's obviously passed away recently, so it's kind of it's kind of hard to speak about this. But he was getting dogs abuse, and any time he was in kind of making speeches and things like that, it was a real bad situation for him in particular. But out of out of nowhere was was this Lithuanian businessman Vladimir Romanov. Now he was known to Scottish football because he had tried to approach Dundee United, Dundee and Infermont to to kind of take over them, but they were all rejected. With the benefit of extremely beneficial hindsight, where they they clearly must have saw through him. I it's a hard it's a hard one to know. I I think uh, I remember reading and obviously he was a master of propaganda. But at this at this point, Vladimir Romanov, but he'd kind of said that they were more they weren't the concrete interests. It was more yeah. sounding out. What do you think? Where can we go? And he kind of you know the Dunfermline Dundee and that will tell you that they kicked him to the curb and said no. He will tell you that he had a look and said no. They're there are no other clubs for me, etc. So you'll never really know where it was. But in terms of Hearts, he was a total unknown to us. We'd never never heard of him, if you know what I mean. He'd never really... It, it just came sort of out of nowhere, if you know what I mean. It was almost left field. But we were, at that point, like you said, we, were, we let Black Balloons off at a game versus Rangers because it could potentially have been one of the last home games that we ever played at Tincastle, the the agreement in principle or whatever had been reached to sell Tincastle, mm-hmm. uh, moved to Murrayfield and folk, when you back anybody in a corner, folk react, uh, you know, there's no ill will towards Chris Robinson now, obviously his hearts are in a, in a much better place than they were and, you know, our thoughts and that go out to his family and mm-hmm. that because it is sad, no one likes to see anybody lose a life regardless of what happened in football, you know, some things in life are, are bigger than football, but, uh, I think Hearts at that point and them particularly must have just thought, look, whoever it is, just give them it. Like, get me out of here almost. Mm-hmm. And it's that thing as well, like, we... And I... The, the video of this is, is available, you can see it. When Romanov walked into the the AGM, there are Hearts fans shaking his hands. There's Hearts, Hearts fans, like... The whistles you hear, like, the, the roaring of... Hearts fans when he walked in the door that day it felt and I think there's this thing as well When I, I think there's a wee comparison you can make with Abramovich at Chelsea because he'd come in this conquering oligarch who was who seemed to be this mysterious guy who seemed to have all this money and to a, to a fan of Hearts who as you say they're chasing greatness, they're chasing the, the split of the old farm, it must have been enticing with this guy coming in saying as you say, he's a propaganda machine he would say anything and he was coming in giving all these kind of fantasies. and But it must have been appealing for a Hearts fan at the time because you've got this guy in who's unknown, who's saying all the right things. That that does, that must appeal. Yeah, it did. But I think what almost set the, set the place on fire in terms of the excitement was what happened on the park. Uh, you know, so he took over, I think John Robertson had just took over from we were in that sort of transition period where Craig Levine had left us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd actually just came off back-to-back finishing thirds. We were playing in, in the Europa, Europa League group stages for Scottish side to do that outside the old forum. We were on a bit of a high as a club uh, with everything that was going on off the park. Then he leaves to go to Leicester. I think Robbo took over. Mm-hmm. Robbo, was the, Robbo was the manager for a bit and Romanoff was kind of in the background just sort of finalising He's in the sale of the club and, and all that sort of stuff. And it was fairly low-key in terms of what he was doing when he first took over. It wasn't until that summer mm-hmm. when it kind of just started this absolute juggernaut of success and madness and like euphoria that we'd never 
never seen as, as Hearts fans and probably never ever will ever again. I remember we played Middlesbrough in a pre-season friendly uh, where they registered like Paul Hartley and Stephen Presley and Andy Webster and all these guys as trialists because they hadn't signed new contracts or whatever it was to begin with. Vlad made it free entry to Tyncastle mm-hmm. Tuesday night or something like that. 18,000 sellout, couldn't they get in? And I think we drew 1-1, but it was the first glimpse of getting to see Edgarish Jankowskis and Julian yeah. Brelli and Rudy Scacho and Takis Fesis and all that. And folk were like, Jesus, like, mm-hmm. this this could be outrageous. We're playing a brand of football that Hearts have probably never never seen and, and anybody outside Celtic and Rangers will, will never probably see again. Uh, very much akin to right now in terms of Celtic at their best right now under Ange Postacoglu. Literally, from the first whistle, it was just go for it. A hundred yeah. mile an hour. Yeah, I remember going into one of the games, missed the kickoff by 10 minutes and can remember with five or 10 minutes to go, being apoplectic with rage off my seat, shouting at hearts to keep going forward, keep going forward. We need to win, we need to win. And guys were like, mate, it's 2-0. Mm-hmm. I, missed, I missed the two goals. <laughs> We've been 10 minutes late into the ground to, let us, to sit down and, and calm down. So that was like, it was a bit of a low-key start, but as soon as George Burley came in, as soon as Vlad started talking to the press about what he wanted to do, that was just, that sort of kick-started the juggernaut for there. Steve, before we get into talking about kind of Burley's appointment and things like that, there's an appointment I kind of want to talk about kind of off the field. Obviously, George Folks was was very influential in the Romanoff kind of thing. He was the one that he kind of sold them, to, sold Romanoff to the shareholders, is that fair to say? Yep. Yep. But obviously, Romanoff comes in and he, he hires Phil Anderton. Now, Phil Anderton had obviously done a brilliant job at Scottish Rugby. He was, he's marketing at, at Scottish Rugby. He's probably the reason Scottish Rugby does so well, but his nickname was Firework Phil because he was he was more a okay, he was a showman. He would put on yeah. these fireworks displays at, at Murrayfield. I remember was it Clive Woodward, I think, said something like it was more like a pop concert than a rugby game at a Six Nations or something. But Phil Anderton was a big appointment at the time. And I remember that specifically because he seemed to be this new, he was going to bring in this new marketing campaign. He was going to be this he was going to transform Hearts off the field because Hearts were going through a bad, it was a bad publicity time for Hearts. So Phil Anderton seemed to be the right guy to kind of bring in that new that new transition. Yep, 100%. And uh, they were all the sort of folk I've heard people inside Hearts now decide, like talk about that literally from the start, it was an operation doomed to fail, like from mm. the very, very start. But from the outside, we went from, I always tell this story about what life was like before Romanoff and what life was like after Romanoff. And it sounds really mental to any club that is like a big club, right? We went to Aberdeen away, last game of the season. And I remember stopping at a petrol station halfway between Edinburgh and Aberdeen. And a beat up Mondeo pulled up beside us after the game. And Stephen Presley and Paul Hartley jumped out. They were giving Lee Wallace a lift mm. so that his mum could give Lee Wallace a lift back up the road. <laughs> and I was I was like, that's my football team. Like that's they're my heroes. And they're driving about in a, a car that my dad's got. They're wearing like they didn't have club suits on, they've no got club trackies on or whatever. They didn't even have a team bus to take them <laughs> up to Pitogi, which was which was where we were at that point. Mm-hmm. Then Phil Anderton and Romanoff came in and it was like, no, we want to be a big team. Mm-hmm. Then to attract big players, we need better facilities. We need a better stadium in terms of what it's like inside. We need to look the part. And we started to go everywhere. We stayed in hotels before games, even if it was at Tyne Castle, we stayed in hotels. We drove to the game in a bus. All this stuff that it's par for the course for your Celtic, your Rangers, your Man United's, etc., etc. But to see Hearts do it, that difference between where we were before fighting for our lives to stay at Tyne Castle to now suddenly we've got guys that have won the Champions League, we've got guys that have won the Euro, the Euros, uh, we've got guys that have played in World Cups, we've got th- these superstars, so mm-hmm. to speak, coming in and out of Tyne Castle. It was it was brilliant, and Phil Anderton was massive on that. He was absolutely massive in making that like a big thing. I remember the the game against uh, Rangers. We 
was one of the things we could have been on the telly for uh, Hibs. We played Hibs in the second game of the season, the first home game of the season. But it was the Rangers one, I think, where it was like you said, we had fireworks, mm-hmm. flamethrowers, we everything we had bagpipes and <laughs> everything you could imagine before the game. It was it was crazy, and it really did build up to like what you seen on the pitch. We scored within fourteen minutes, eight games unbeaten, top of the league. Like it was outrageous. And obviously, George Bully gets appointed, and we'll we'll can I do that? Well, can I talk more about Bully? Overall, because his tenure is great as it is, doesn't last very long. But the signings he brings in, I mean, you said they're a bit scatchy. Jankowskis has obviously been in that Porto team that won the Champions League. But Takis Feist is always one that stands out to me. Takis Feist was one of the best players at the European Championships two years before. And he's signing for Hearts. I mean, that it showed you just that ambition. And it, may, it must have been exciting because, I mean, Feist was unbelievable. But that statement of signing a player like that and what was that? What was the kind of memories of those players coming in and just individually just seeing that? Because oh. Hearts had a good team there as well. He'd like, as you say, uh, Presley, Gordon was coming through. You had Hartley, Robbie Nielsen. Yeah, exactly. We had a core of good players, but yeah. the only thing I can liken it to is I, I can remember sitting watching Martin O'Neill Celtic. I think they were 4 0 up against Hearts in the first half. And you couldn't even be annoyed because I was watching. Henrik Larson and Chris mm-hmm. Sutton and Lubavir Moravchik and just Stilly and Petrov players, you're thinking they just shouldn't play in this league, man. They're just they're miles above where we are. And I remember actually thinking that watching Harps, like watching Takis Visas, I was like, what is going on? This <laughs> guy was sensational in the Euros, scored the, the goal that gets them gets them through, I think it was against Turkey or whatever it is, yeah, to get them out the, yeah. uh, the groups to, yeah. Yeah, to go on and do it. You're watching uh, Gareth Jankowskis, who's played under Jose Mourinho, mm-hmm. won the, what did, I think he was part of the side that, that beat Celtic and then yeah. they won the Champions League. Uh, you've got Julian Brelli, we've signed him from Juventus. Mm-hmm. Like, what? <laughs> 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 how, have we, how have we managed that? It was... It was crazy. It was it was surreal. And what was more surreal, wasn't it, that they were playing for Hearts, but it was actually seeing just how good they were, if you know what I mean. Like, you, you sign good players and you have good players that come to your side and you have your fans' favourites and your cult heroes. But, like, right now, we watch Craig Gordon and I'd argue with anybody that even at 39, Craig Gordon is a world-class goalkeeper. He mm-hmm. could play for any side in the world and would still be a great goalkeeper. Like, But they're like once in a lifetime, so you get a player like that that comes through your club. Yeah, We were seeing that We were seeing that every week. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Every week it was, aye, it was very surreal. Bullied come in and obviously the start is tremendous. Eight wins and two draws for the first 10 games. What yep. was, what, when did you kind of see that that team? Because Burley had obviously come in. Burley was a massive appointment, but what was the kind of memories of that start? Well, I actually think we went in the, we went in the full first round of fixtures undefeated. Yeah. We didn't lose until we went to Easter Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, aye, it was just, it was crazy. I remember being, our opening game of the season, we played Kilmarnock, right? Uh, we took four and a half thousand fans or whatever it was to to Rugby Park and I remember pre-game the state the stand being heaving 10 minutes before kickoff, absolutely chock a block and Phil Anderton and Vladimir Romanov on the pitch taking photos of the crowd standing in front of them sort of waving etc and then I think we go 1-0 down I think Stephen Naismith scored to make it make it 1-0 Kilmarnock and you're thinking oh here we go typical hearts like, do you know what I mean like we've had this we're team for superstars and the dream's going to come unstuck. But then, obviously, we're going to win 4-2. And it wasn't just that we won 4-2. It was the manner in which we played, the style that we played. Then we play Hibs the next again week at Tynecastle. I think we won 4-0. But absolutely blow them away. Like, And then that was... it, It could have been any team in Scotland at that point. We did it with the Rangers. We went to Celtic Park and did it. Like... It wasn't just like a, a one-off type thing. I've watched Hearts, you know, Jim Jeffries' Heart side in uh, 1998, 
finished seven points behind Celtic and Rangers and were superb. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Jeffrey side again in the 2011 season. I think about 11, 12 games unbeaten. And at one point, we were two or three points behind Celtic, challenging up the top. And then the steam run it. Mm-hmm. This was like a different feeling because we genuinely were like, I don't see how this stops. Like, we're, the players that were bringing off the bench, Mikhail Pospisil, Roman Bednar, mm-hmm. these guys were like, these guys were brilliant football players. Like, these were superstars as well that were coming off the bench to play. And they were kicking on, like, Jamie McAllister and Stephen Simmons and Callum Elliott. Like, all these players that were, that would have just been running the mill, bog standard Scottish football players were now suddenly scoring goals every week and looked phenomenal. So it was more, wasn't it just the results? It was more the style of play was just 4-4-2, get the ball wide and literally run until you stop and you kind of you kind of run anywhere and then we'll bring somebody else on who will run for you. And it was just, we just steamrolled teams. It was brilliant. And at that point, clearly thoughts would have been like, this This is the chance to really split the old firm, but a move that comes out of the blue, and it did out of the blue at the time, that there was a statement George Burley had been sacked by Vladimir Romanov, there was talk of a, a mutual agreement, the terms of the two didn't get on, but dig a little deeper, I think we can certainly say there was potentially things happening above George Burley's head, the infamous Ibrahim Tal story is just one of them, but you're having that start and we'll touch on obviously what happens with Burley we'll go into it in a bit of detail in a minute but what was the memories of that day when you found out Burley was sacked? Well we'd been there'd been rumours building that you know things weren't right mm-hmm. uh, things weren't right behind the behind the scenes Vladimir Romanov wasn't happy with you know we were celebrating our draw at Celtic Park Vladimir Romanov famously went into the changing room at Celtic Park mm-hmm. to tell them to stop celebrating. Uh, nothing to be proud of getting a draw. We're here to win the league or whatever. George Burley, I don't know if he, if he never believed that the club, that the team could go on and win the league or if he was just doing that manager thing and trying to protect his players and keep their, their feet on the ground. I don't know. We'll never know. But Vlad didn't like that idea that you know, we didn't believe within the club and the, the group of players that were there, the Scottish contingent predominantly didn't believe that they could win the league and he, he didn't like that. Uh, then I think we started to hear stories as well about guys on the board, your Phil Andertons and all these guys yeah. as well were of the same opinion that, look, if we can finish second and win a cup, what a season it would be type mm-hmm. thing. And, you know, you can't... You can't expect to win the league, etc. And I, I don't think Vlad liked any of that stuff at the time. He obviously was a he was a total maniac as well. He wanted, like you said, he wanted to he wanted to sign the players. He had crazy methods of signing players, crazy methods of determining whether people were fit or not, and then he become incredibly paranoid. So it was a total shock. Obviously, no one really expects you're riding massively high. Mm-hmm. top of the league, unbeaten, playing phenomenal stuff. Rangers were imploding mm-hmm. under Alec McLeish. You're thinking, what an opportunity we have to go do something special. And then it was like, I think it was a day of the game. I we played Dunfermline yeah, at Tincastle. Right. And, it, and it breaks to say that, uh, that, that, that George Burley wouldn't be in charge. Now. And Paul Hartley famously has the For You gaffer hang on his top as he's walking off the park and all that. So it was just... It was surreal. It's probably the the best the best thing to sum up. I mean, the thing that's always stuck with me is, is I remember Andy Webster's been on the the show, and I've asked him, I asked him about it. I says, "What actually happened?" And I've the story about Ibrahim Tal. Is it? Have you heard the story that he, he arrived at a trial with no boots? Aye, like, but that was just par for the course, man. There was a, there's about a thousand stories. Yes, and but you like just it. think of that, like there's there's a craziness to that, like. We play what if in this show? If George Burley had stayed to the end of that season, would Hearts have won the league? In my opinion, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, I think they would too. I think uh, it's that it was almost that Leicester moment, wasn't it? It was yeah. Rangers were on the brink 
uh, things going on in the background that would then transpire in the years to come in terms of their financial situation. Uh, they were on a dwind- they were on a, a dwindling bit in terms of the quality of players that they had. You know, they, they'd went from the world superstars to you know Kurt Broadfoot and, and the likes, etc. And I thought Celtic were a bit of an aging aging squad as well. And uh, Gordon Strachan, he was a manager at the time, wasn't he? Still Gordon Strachan. Yeah, he was. Sure, yeah. was. Uh, I just felt that if we'd kept if we'd kept going, there would have been a point where. It, it would have been the point in no return, if you know what I mean. Like, we'd played Celtic away from home and got a draw. We'd played Rangers at home and beat them. You only have to play them again, like, one more round. If we could have beat... If we'd went undefeated against them, then, yeah, sky's the limit. So, uh, yeah, I think I think we could have. And it obviously facilitates this massive change of feeling around the club. I mean, George Folks, who was a massive Vladimir Romanov guy, had sold his shares to Vladimir Romanov. That allowed Romanov to build his majority in the in the shares. I mean, it was 82% or something at this point, and yep. Folks immediately just turns course, and it's he also sacks Ander, uh, Anderton as well, who was kind of approaching coaches, and there was just this, it went from such a, a high point to this Unbelievable turn of events in just a short space of time. Aye, the, it, it, it seems so. It's really different. The Vladimir Romanov story is is almost twofold, right? Because take away loads of the noise, loads of the paranoia, and loads of the nonsense that he spoke about. Mm-hmm. He actually nailed Scottish football hundreds of times. He said that Rangers were running insolvent and there was dodgy stuff going on in the background to keep them afloat. He said that from the start. He said that there's insider stuff where teams are getting teams know each other's teams because a pally a pals a coach and tells them and then suddenly they know what you're doing there's tapping up you know Celtic and Rangers will have their mitts into folk telling people you know we're going to sign you or we can give you this and we can do that the media disrupting you with news stories and stuff trying to derail us all that stuff was true. Like every single bit of that was completely and utterly true. The problem that he had was that it was all in, in, intertwined with absolute ramblings of a madman. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like players showing up to training with football boots, full contract. We used to, I used to joke with my mate saying, I'm going to buy a tracksuit and put LC on it and I get my football boots. I'm just going to show up at training. I'm, <laughs> gonna go, I'm just going to go to Rickerton and see what happens, see how long it takes for them to notice that I'm not a football player or I shouldn't be there because the amount of people that were coming in on trial was just nuts. So I think you've said it, it soured with the massive high for Hearts of going to Celtic Park, getting a draw, 1-0 down as well, come back and get a draw. We're very unlucky not to win it. Mikel Pospisil hits the bar. Uh, I think Arthur Boric at the time would have been in goals for Celtic. I think he makes a brilliant save uh, right at the very end as well from Pospisil again. And from that side of the moment, things I've heard Robbie Nielsen talk about in, in other podcasts. I've heard uh, the guy that the Mark Donaldson that runs the Scarce Around the Funnel podcast. He right. was the media in chief for uh, mm-hmm. Hearts at the time and was talking about you know some of the crazy in the background so it was it was a shock it was it was crazy but I don't know if I, I find some of the stuff that he was he was talking about was actually not that far off being right and then obviously it's, he comes out and says that he's going to bring in a top class manager to replace Burley there's names mentioned Claudio Ranieri, uh, Otmar Hitzfeld, I don't know if any of them were, were legit, but to bring up those names and then who he actually brings in is, I mean, this was never going to go down well with the fans. Now, I'm I'm not going to judge Graham Ricks for anything. I'm going to judge him here on his football tenure. He should never have been in that. He should never have been appointed Hearts. That was never going to go well. No, and you're you're right. It, the whole thing was a shambles. Uh, the names that were bounded about that we could that we could get 
and what we were looking for, Claudio Ranieri, obviously was it's famous for being in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. having having chats. Neville Scala was mm-hmm. one that never really went away. Vlad was kind of obsessed with trying to get Neville Scala in, uh, and then obviously total left field Graham Ricks comes in. Now I'm the opposite from you. I know you're saying you can't you can't judge him and all that sort of stuff, and I suppose it's not here for us to do it. But that should have instantly ruled him out of yeah any any job any Absolutely. any any big job in Scottish football, and it's something that plagues the club. It's something that uh, the club's embarrassed about now, especially when you look at how we've rebranded as a club. Now we've got Save the Children, we've got yeah. MD on the stuff, all that. All those things in that black cloud is will always be there that you know should never have should never have been at the club, uh, and I felt Hearts fans were in between a rock and a hard place. You were on the verge and still have the opportunity to have an amazing season. We go into the Boxing Day game versus Celtic, we win that game, we go above them in points. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know we're we're in the Scottish Cup. We still had loads to play for. We're still chasing a league title. So. The fans, rightly or wrongly, you can't. You've got to just get behind the manager because you're chasing this dream. You're clinging on to a dream that we could do something special. If you know what I mean. And you're right. Even just if you take his football and pedigree for where he'd been and what he'd done, the job was was always going to be too big for him anyway. I totally forgot about Neville Scala, but now you mention it, I, <laughs> I remember it very clearly that he was just he, he seemed to want him all the time. And every single time, every yeah. single time there was a managerial spot came up, he wanted. It's another thing that was really weird to put Vladimir Romanov and some of the stuff that he, that he got right. But he was trying to build what basically Man City and Man United and Arsenal and all these teams have right now. He wanted Neville Scala to be the head of the football department, so he wanted him to be like a football director almost. He wanted. Mm-hmm. He wanted the academies to play a certain way. He wanted like the scouting networks to be a certain way, bring certain players in, certain managers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But never funded it, or never really knew anything about football business as to how to bring that in. Which is why he always just relied on his son, like the, the one person that he could he could trust almost. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's the weird thing about this is that. There's a weird nepotism about this as well. Of, I mean, George Folks and Phil Anderton were probably good. Were probably good at their job, but it just replaces him with his son. And it's not because he's the best man for the job. It's because he's the guy you can trust. And yeah, George I... Folks is a weird one because George Folks obviously obviously brings him to the table. I would imagine he's very. I mean, gives him basically gives him a way in and. As soon as he, he sees it turning, he's Vladimir Romanov's biggest critic. And I've, I've always found that weird thing about it, how quickly that can change. Uh, but that George Folk's a politician, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's, you know, they, they'll go where, they'll go in the direction of the populace. It's to save their save their skin, if you know what I mean. You know, it's dead easy to, to say, oh, I brought him in because he had all these false promises and he's not mm-hmm. delivered, so now I want him out. And so, yeah. Yeah, I know, but you also could have had some of the warnings that were sent your way about potentially, you know, where's this money coming from? What's his true intention with a football club? Done a bit of due diligence, etc. before you bring him to the table. Uh, I always found him a bit of a blowhard, if I'll be honest with you, George Fox. He's still a blowhard right now on Hearts mm-hmm. Twitter. You know, he'll pipe up every now and again when there's something to have a pop at with a football club, if you know what I mean, and stoom when everything's rosy and Everything's gone well and got no time for folk like it. <laughs> but obviously, Ricks, I, I think he was in a hiding to nothing. The whole situation with Webster as well. Ricks is sacked in March and replaced with Valdis Avanuskis. What did you think when he came in? <sighs> nothing, because I didn't. We never really knew anything about him. Like, we never knew who he was. Were you surprised though, because he was bringing he was bringing the guy in from Kaunas? Like it was. He was bringing his own guy in. Did you just did you see that coming when Rex was sacked? No, to be honest with you, we were at that point where all of the, everybody that we signed was signed to Kaunas and then came to us on loan. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever was happening in Kaunas and the link with Kaunas, 
uh, was just par for the course now for Hearts. It was just it was just what Hearts did. If you know what I mean? Uh, I actually feel really sorry for uh, Valdas Evenhouse because mm-hmm. he was actually brilliant. He was actually a really yeah. good coach, really good manager, and just the the stress of having to work with the madness that was Vlad and others. And I've I've heard Zaliaukis or people talk about Mary Zaliaukis say that because the Lithuanians could speak to Vlad, they almost bore the brunt of everything that happened. Mm-hmm. And then they become that, you know, especially later on that we'll, we'll probably talk about. But when, you know, players are only being paid, yeah. they'll go, they're going to go to the one, the, the people at the club that can actually converse with Romanov and say, what the fuck's happening? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. uh, and that's where, so it made sense to have Valdas at the time. I think Hartsman's just wanted to really shot at Rex as quickly as we could. He was just, he was just weird. The way he spoke in the media was weird. Yeah. He smoked those silly wee roll-up things and he kept licking his lips all the time. And he was just weird. He was just a weird, weird guy. But obviously the second place finish in the league, cha- uh, the chance of Champions League football, but also a Scottish Cup win over Gretna and penalties. This is a weird, weird game when you actually look back at this and just how both clubs end up going. Push your memories of that day. Well, the big... The, we've had two two of these before, and it's really weird. 2006, obviously, we play Hibs in the semi-final. Mm-hmm. It's the first time the clubs have met each other in the semi-final for a century or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and obviously, we batter them. You know, Paul Hartley scores a hat-trick. And you know... Whoever gets through that final plays Gretna in the final, so we almost won it that day. Do you know what I mean? Like we mm-hmm. we knew we'd what we knew we'd won the cup or we should win the cup. So it was that typical Scottish football way of we kind of showed up. Like forty five thousand tickets sold. We had pretty much the whole of Hamden. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were all decided that it was going to be Stephen Presley's first ever trophy as a captain. So everybody yeah. was dressed up as Elvis and. <laughs> all that sort of stuff in, in honour of him. And we just almost made a total idiot ourselves and, and lost it. It was a very, very strange, strange game. But obviously, kind of what's out as a, a victory. And as you say, Ebenuskis is very underrated because he doesn't really, he's dealing with this complete shambles in the background. But he's signed off due to health reasons what do you think? Do you think that was legit, or was that was there something else to that? I genuinely so the summary of that we win the cup, massive high, mm-hmm. but every player, and this is where I think Hearts fans started to be like, oh, actually, things behind the scenes could potentially be a bit mental. Like it, mm-hmm. we were in defence mode as Hearts, uh, like. We just felt like everybody on the, the planet didn't want Hearts to do well. So there was all these constant leaks and stories and things going on that like sort of making it ridicule and what Hearts were up to. So Hearts fans were kind of in this sort of self-defense mode of we'll no listen to anything that's in the media and we'll just believe whatever the, the club say because we're winning trophies, we're split the old firm, the first team to do that outside the, uh, in the new league structure, etc., etc. Champions League qualification. But then in that summer, players start to leave. You know, the schedule decides, doesn't he? He doesn't want to stay at the club and you're thinking, right, you know, we've potentially got Champions League football here and he'd rather go play for Southampton mm-hmm. in the championship at the time. Uh, then we obviously bring in a shed load of random players in the summer. Uh, and you knew that the writing was on the wall with just how mental hearts were in the background when you know, like Julian Brelli got sent off against AK Athens for wearing an earring. And it's like, how how are we on this stage and having players sent off for having an earring? And so I just think it built up. It was just too much for him at a time. And uh, obviously, but it lasted about six months of the next again season. Mm-hmm. And then... I think he just had enough and said, no, well, get me out of here. I can't, I can't do this. And he brings in, uh, let's just keep his name right, Edward Ed- Malov- Malovayev, I think she's right there. Edward Malafi, he uh, was a psychopath. Yes. and An absolute psychopath. And obviously Romanoff at this time, he comes out with that statement that 
all the players were up for sale to whatever club would take them. Yep. Uh, and he's again, he's mental. <laughs> he is, but like underlying, right? He actually he has a point in some of the stuff that he was saying because at Kurt Broadfoot, for example, he was just on open goal a few weeks ago, a month or so ago, talking about and laughing with the others on that podcast about how they deliberately undermined Alessi at Kilmarnock yeah. because he has crazy foreign te- training techniques. Mm-hmm. And you think, you're a professional football player, man. Yes, yeah, so like, totally look at Look at Celtic's reaction to Ronnie Dyler as well, you know, Scott Brown pictured steaming outside a kebab shop night before the League Cup final, no wanting to be vegan, Chris Commons arguing with him because he's been taken off. Like, we have a thing in Scottish football culture where we just don't like foreigners. Like, we just, we, we don't, I don't know what it is, we just don't all, react yeah, to them. It's all wrong, yeah, I totally agree. And, and part of that was right and, and the other thing that Romanoff used to talk about as well is that you know I've heard people that have played for like John Hughes and all these type of guys gone to Ibrox and you know the team talk is just enjoy it boys brilliant you know imagine one day you get to play for them you know what a, what a, what a, what a place to play your football and you think you're here to win mm-hmm. like you what, what do you mean there was a story I remember a John Hughes story where he was almost boasting at a time we was a manager in Burness and Anthony Stokes had been falling in and out of favour with whoever they sell, whether it be Gordon Strachan or Ronnie Dyla, I can't remember who it was, was in charge of Celtic at the time. And he'd been disciplined and chucked at the squad, but he was in the stand and John Hughes pre-match was saying how he was up talking to Anthony Stokes, telling him that he was still a good player and get your head in the game and, you know, what a club you're at and you could do well here and all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, in two hours you're you're playing against this team. Why why are you even bothered? You should be celebrating that Tony Stokes is in the stand. It should be part of your team talk. But again, it's just there is something deep rooted within Scottish. And I don't know if it's because they're the two they're the two giants that are here, right? There's no point getting away from it. Every second every second person you speak to supports either Celtic or Rangers, right? Every mm-hmm. Football coach wants to coach Celtic and Rangers. Everybody knows that if you make it in Scotland, it's because you're at Celtic and Rangers. So I think Vlad came in at the time when everything was rosy and Mm -hmm. wanted to smash that. He wanted to be like, no, we want to change this. We want to be the big team. We want to go for it. And he found resistance from nearly everybody that he spoke to. You know, if he told people that in the media, he was ridiculed. and They would laugh at him, say, you can't do it. You know, go on a day, called him mad, Vlad, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We talked to the Scottish players, the Scottish boys in the team. They were like, oh, I'm not sure. We, you know, we could, but maybe next year that we could do it. And then his manager's saying the same thing. So, like, he was crazy. But underlying, he did point out a hell of a lot of stuff that is wrong with a game here, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean, and, and, no, no. and that that was one that no, was one of the things that always stuck out for me was was this resistance to anything that was near the old boys Scottish Boys Club Act, mm-hmm. and obviously that time can kind of the situation the the players are showing that there's unrest and things like that, and it leads to the infamous press conference with Stephen Presley, Craig Gordon, and Paul Hartley, and Stephen Presley kind of reads out this statement, and it's. There's a weird thing about it because I don't know what Stephen if Stephen Presley was because Stephen Presley was going the understanding that Stephen Presley was going to get the assistant manager's job or something like that. There was something weird about this, but that press conference. What did that kind of tell you at the time that these three top the, the three top players of that team were were basically saying how bad it was behind the scenes and there's unrest in the dressing room and morale's not good. What does that tell you as a fan? Everything that we already knew, if mm. you know what I mean. Like it was all if it was the, the stuff you didn't want to hear. Like it was the the stuff that you hoped was exaggerated in the press. Uh, but if it had been anybody else, I think they maybe got a different reaction. But the fact that the club captain Stephen Presley at that point was an absolute hero to mm. Hearts fans, he was a living legend. Craig Gordon, young superstar goalkeeper that we were like, this guy's going to go to the top. Like He's a, a world-class keeper even at 
2021 when he was coming through and Paul Hartley, you know, this this cult hero icon that scores hat-tricks against Hibs and wins cups and stuff, if they're coming out and telling you this is crazy, then you know, geez, it, it must be crazy. And at that point was at the height of like, we were signing player after random player after player after player, bringing in loads and loads of folk for Lithuania, randoms. We, we just spent, what, 830,000 grand or whatever it was on Merslad Bezleisia, yeah. uh, who was a total flop. Uh, aye, so it was a shock, but not unsus... Not, it wasn't like a massive. We didn't... It didn't knock me for six. We were kind of what they said was what we always kind of feared would was the case behind the scenes. Anyway, did you know? Did you know then that it was just a matter of time before those three were out the door? Aye, aye. And what I just said there about Scottish players and the mentality that that's different for them three. I I, I totally understand why they did what they did. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think especially like I said, if it was anybody else, it was the fact that the three of them who have a deep love for the club. They wouldn't say that. They mm. they were talking to the fans. They they were talking to the press, but they were talking to the fans. Do you know what I mean? Like they were yeah. they were trying to say, look, like we've tried our best. We're doing everything we can, but this isn't normal. Like this isn't normal in the background. At that point was the height of like Vlad flu. So you know the facts would come through. You know Rex or even Ouskis or whoever would day the team lineup, and then two minutes later it would change. And then they were going to see the crazy witch doctor with a silly stick that they would touch. They'd touch and they'd plug themselves into a machine that told them whether they were fit or no and all this. And they were just like, nah, this is this is crazy. Get me out of here. And getting into the kind of 2007-2008, on the field it's not going well. There's really poor results. And Romanov says he's going to appoint a British-style manager in the near future. He brings it. He, he promotes Stevie Frail, who was obviously in... As, as an assistant, along with is it how do you pronounce it? Is it Kurt Kurt Jochka or something like that? Was he the Korobotchka? He, he was the problem with Stevie Frey and Stevie Frey obviously was a a decent player for Hearts, but how, what does that tell you when Stevie Frey was basically getting the job and it was just well, weird. He was a youth youth coach, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, you know, and and in the nicest well in the way folk that have been in the game and played the game there's a difference right you know there's a difference between a coach and a youth coach etc like a, a great example of that is the the rangers hibs semi-final in the league cup last year mm-hmm. they've went from steven gerrard stopping 10 in a row playing a brilliant style of football undefeated in the league etc etc to that team have had to go a week or 10 days and being prepared by the under-18s coaches. Yeah. And what, they get beat 3-0 at Hamden. Do you know what I mean? The, the players are watching the subs that are coming on and thinking, what the hell? Like, what we doing? What, what we doing that for? It, and it shouldn't be. Like you said, there should be professionalism there or then, but football and folk around football know the difference between a coach and a youth coach. So, Stevie Frill was always on a hide and nothing in that aspect. And obviously, as well, we they make approaches for the likes of Vladimir Vice was was mentioned. Jurgen Robar was just a couple of names, but Neville Scala gets brought up again here. But <laughs> do you think Romanov had made the job unattractive because he was interfe- interfering with the team lines? I I think that you start to see that with the appointments of people. Yeah, they were jobs for the boys almost. It was anybody that couldn't have peeked behind the curtain. Like do you know what I mean, like they, these folk already knew how it worked knew what to expect, knew what was coming, and it was basically just a case of, like, I'm crazy, deal with it, rather than, no, everything's brilliant, come in, see what you can do, and then have to sack them after two weeks because they didn't want to play random Lithuanians for Kaunas and they didn't want to change the shape and all that sort of stuff. Jabba Laszlo comes in as well. He he comes in, and to be fair to him, I think with the, the hand he's dealt, he does pretty well. He probably comes out of this with some decent, a decent reputation. Is that fair? Aye. But he was equally as mental as Romanoff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Weirdly mental because he's, I think he would probably bore you to tears if you you had a five-minute conversation with him. But 
he had he obviously had to work with the same constraints they all did, but he seemed to come out of it probably better than most. Aye, and look, I think it's it was a testament to the players that were playing for Hearts at the time mm-hmm. where they had they didn't just chuck it. Do you know what I mean? Then they just think, who cares, man? Like, this is this is crazy. Get me out of there. You know, I think a mixture of the fact that your hearts are a big team, you're finishing third is kind of the expectation, or at least playing in Europe and stuff. So, Shabalazlo brought a bit of normality back to hearts when it when it came to that, that sense. If you know what I mean, the football wasn't dreadful and we got some fairly decent results. When does the kind of financial situation at the club begin to kind of read its head? Because you look at the the nine million for Gordon, for example, spending money in players like Kingston and Abua. Now, I thought Kingston was really good, but he seemed to be just he would turn it on and off whenever he wanted, which, as you know as well as I do, if you're in Scottish football, that doesn't work. But there seemed to be a lot of money going out of the club, despite there being some decent income as well. So, was that kind of when did that first become a a situation that you were like, wait a minute, this is potentially not good for the start to be honest we we were paying we had a a Chilean striker called Pena right the best football player I've ever seen play for Hearts Mm -hmm. two goals in three games he played for Hearts superb what a football player went back to Serie A he did he went back to he went to Serie A scored goals for fun went to the World Cup with Chile Mm -hmm. and retired playing football in Chile an absolute legend he's now Mm -hmm. like the Gary Lineker match of the day in Chile yeah and we're paying him £30,000 a week outrageous £2,000 a week for Hearts £28,000 a week or whatever for Kaunas in Lithuania we were Jose Cancalves Ibrahim Tal yeah Miroslav Bezleja all these players were on like 10, 20,000 pounds a week playing with hearts. And you're thinking, what the hell? Like, mm-hmm. where is that money coming from? Like, so it was kind of always in the background. But again, it's like any football club. You play well, you win, nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Literally no one cares. You know, I've said loads of times before that you, you want to know what football clubs in Scotland are in the day. And well, go on Twitter and search who the football director is for that club at the time or the head of the academy and you'll start to see people tweeting about them that's when you know things are gone wrong because Mm -hmm. the only folk that fans should know about is the manager maybe the assistant manager and the players that's it that's when everything's rosy when they start calling out CEOs and (coughs) head scouts and the catering staff and all that that's when you know things are things are gone wrong Obviously, as well, you mentioned earlier about the players' wages been playing been paid late and win bonuses remaining outstanding and things like that. Like, how hard does it if you're a player when you're you're not getting paid? Obviously, we would know like we're on job if we weren't getting paid, but that can't be that can't be good. Like, when you're, how are you meant to focus on playing football when you're not getting paid? And you remember at the time the likes are. There, was, there seemed to be a desperation. I think Christoph Berra, I think they actually were getting to the stage where they were telling him not to come in. They didn't want him there. Aye, they were. They there, was loads of, there was loads of stories of things like that. You know, you even, you've got guys like Ian Black going back to painting and decorating mm-hmm. to, to make some money. And, you know, I've, I've listened to loads of the players from on podcast. I've been lucky enough to talk to, to some of the players that were there at the time. And, that's it's the football club, not the fans. It's the football club. It's the folk in the background, your masseuse, your chefs, the folk yeah. in the club that look after you every single day. They're the reason why those players kept coming in. Do you know what I mean? Because they were like actual. We're all we're all in this together. Like folk were paying wages of staff. They were missing their bonus. They were paying young boys wages like older pros being like right, what do you need to get by for your mortgage etc etc and you knew that we were in trouble when Vlad stopped coming right Vlad loved being pictured on the telly and being at the game and having folks singing his name and all that sort of stuff he loved all that stuff when he stopped showing up for you know the games on the telly versus Celtic and Rangers mm-hmm. when he stopped coming to Hamden uh, when he stopped coming to any games whatsoever, 
ever and we just kept getting wheeled out as we weasel son you knew that things just things weren't things weren't gone right and when does it get to that point where you think like when like administration becomes a possibility because Jim Jeffries for example Jim Jeffries comes back and I think that's he just it just doesn't work because although Romanoff isn't there, he's still he's not there in person, but he's obviously still got his guys there who are just I mean, basically Jeffrey's said something wrong, I think, and it resulted in Jeffrey's been fired. Aye. And there's some do's and don'ts at a football club and Jim Jeffries is an absolute hero. Mm-hmm. Won the Scottish Cup with Hearts, Captain Hearts. Yeah. Whatever he wants, he gets at Tencastle. And, you know, you, you bring him back and then sack him when we're actually doing really, really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you look at that team, it's got Kevin Kyle, Rudy Scatcho, Ryan Stevenson, uh, David Templeton, all these players, and we're actually we're doing really, really well as a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when, like, there's... Certain things that we caught like our final final straws, if you know what I mean. But that was that was when it started to become bleak because you're thinking, what day we day here? Because we don't, who's going to come in now and save hearts? Like we're however many millions in debt, and don't get me wrong, we're only in debt to the guy that owns us, mm-hmm. his bank. So, but how do we get? How do we get rid of them? Like, do you know what I mean? But no one's going to come over and pay fifty million pounds to buy hearts. Like, it's mm-hmm. no, it's not going to happen. So, it started to become a bit scary. Do you know what I mean? It started to be like Jesus. We're like, where do we go now? One in the Scottish Cup as well. Obviously, was that must have been a that must have been a massive good feeling and massive a bad feeling. Obviously, beating Hibs as well when a five one victory it was a very must have been a very big day. Just for the whole club, just that's just a really good day in terms of beating your rivals. But this bleak situation that's going on behind the scenes for this on field situation that must have been great. Well, again, I, I'll do what we did with Gretna. I'll go back to and this for Hibs fans listening, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to enrage you, <laughs> but beat, beating Celtic in the semi final with a last minute penalty at Hamden, like, yeah. come on. When does that happen? When do you get a last-minute penalty v Celtic in the Scottish Cup semi-final to knock them out? We knew that Hibs were in the final, so and I've never Hearts have never been beat by Hibs at Hamden, right? So and we've got a ridiculously good record v Hibs. They were in the mud with Pat Fenland. They were bottom six. We'd yeah. beat, we were on we were unbeaten that whole season against them. When we beat Celtic, I knew we'd won the cup. I know that that sounds in hindsight, I cool, but obviously I'm still nervous, thinking, "Oh no, what if we, what a, we didn't, we can't lose this final, the the first ever Scottish Cup final in a hundred years or whatever it was, the biggest cup final there will ever ever be." So the Celtic game was like a massive, massive high. Mm-hmm. Then obviously you beat you beat Hibs, and you don't just beat them. You know, five one week with the the joint highest ever Scottish Cup final victory. Uh, it could have been more. Uh, I think very famously, Hearts had kind of said that, you know, Paolo Sergio had said to, to Gary Locke just to tell them to sort of see the game out mm. after after we make it 4-1. We kind of said, like, for the next 10 minutes after it goes 4-1, like, we'll go for it and see if we can score anymore. And if we don't, then we'll just, just see it the game. And, and obviously it finishes, it finishes five. So it was a ridiculously big day. It was a massive result for a football club. It was, like you said, the players that had been through quite a lot of rubbish got to celebrate with a trophy. You went against your rivals. You know, you've got Gary Locke, assistant manager, you know, absolute club legend, hearts mm-hmm. through and through. Uh, you know, but you feel sorry for the guys that, that weren't there. You know, David Templeton was injured, missed the final. Kev Kyle, for example, had played a massive part in that side and then left uh, so there was loads of loads of players that, that missed it but I you can't ask for a, a, a better ending to what was a, a horrible time if you know yeah. to, to beat Hibs at Hamden and just to kind of wrap up like the administration obviously becomes a from like it becomes apparent in 2013 and then obviously the 
this amazing story of what happens when fans get together and try and bring the club back to good health. And you've and Bud Shoe, obviously, I I would imagine in your own she'll probably go be always and she'll always have praise. She her praises will always be sung for coming in to rescue the club at that point. hundred percent. And I think in hindsight, looking back at Hearts were very, very lucky that our administration and financial downfall coincided with Rangers because Rangers didn't have a white knight. You know, mm-hmm. you're thinking the size of that football club, the potential of that football club, nobody's coming to buy them. Like, what? so if no one cares enough to buy Rangers, who is coming to save Hearts? Like, do you know what I mean? If they're not going to come and get a 52,000-seater five-star stadium or whatever it is, the hundred and whatever many trophies and all this and European football and the fan base worldwide, etc. If Nay White Knight is riding over the night the hill to save them, then we are done. Like, and I think that helped galvanize hearts mm-hmm. to be like, we need to do something because we've just seen the biggest club in Scotland go out of business. We can't do that. Like we have to do something. Mm-hmm. So there's some people in the background, Brian McCormack, for example. Yeah. Uh, massive, massive, massive debt to him. Gary McKay, club hero, is mm. lambasted by the Hearts fans uh, because he's outspoken, but he's one of us. He just says his mind. He was a, a vehement opponent of Vladimir Romanov saying, where are we going here? What's happening here? Mm-hmm. Because if we didn't get this guy in check, we're snookered. Mm-hmm. And he's right. Uh, he played a big part in getting, getting Anne involved. And then obviously, like, Budge has done so many amazing things for Hearts. I was very, very lucky to be at the official handover last year between uh, the club and the Foundation of Hearts when the club handed the ownership over to the Foundation of Hearts. And when I I got to sit down and speak to him, Budge, from my podcast, uh, I read a a quote from the AGM where Chris Robinson sold Tincastle, where he basically said that, if we don't sell Tencastle, the club will die. Like, to stay here is to sign the club's death warrant. And I was sat with Ann Budge inside a £20 million new stand, mm-hmm. fan-owned, debt-free, with, you know, save our children on the top, just signed a thing with motor neuron disease. Yeah. We, you know, the biggest fan-owned club in Britain, handing over... Thirteen million pounds at the time it was in pledges, nine thousand pledgers. I it was proper, proper surreal, and that the biggest thing that that Ambudge has done is, and it's something that no other, and it's probably the bit she probably wouldn't have done it if she was a football person. It's a stick that people beat her with all the time, is especially when we were on that Craig Levine era type thing. Was oh you know she doesn't know football. Mm-hmm. Well, Luckily, she didn't know football because she came in from day one said, I'm here, I'll put the money up, but I'm giving the fans the club. Yeah. And that's what she said, you know, and she did it. She did it. Most folk that are football oriented would have came in, seen the potential, took some money here and there and said, you know what, actually, I might just ride it out and make some money for a while. She invested the six, eight million pounds, whatever it was, and took whatever she was owed back and then said, here's the club. Like, mm-hmm. I, I did exactly what I said I was going to do. You The club's in safe hands and now look at us. The final point, obviously, is the kind of subject was Vladimir Romanov and you see now, obviously, you read news stories on him. He's he's, up, he's in a bit of trouble himself. And <laughs> What do you kind of make of that? Do you, because, obviously, when Romanov came in and it's hindsight's a wonderful thing and when we do these podcasts, you look you're looking back, but you're also looking back in your your thoughts at the time. But what do you think now when you think back about Vladimir Romanov? Do you do you wish it had worked, or do you think like what was ha- what happened was always going to happen? Uh, it's one of those things. That is, like you said, the old chicken and egg stuff. Into it is mm-hmm. like we wouldn't be, I wouldn't be we wouldn't be here right now. Fan owned, debt free, yeah, new stand, looking to the future with like unbelievable foundations to build on. Mm-hmm. If we didn't have Vlad, like do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So, and we've been there, we've been down the rabbit hole, so to speak. We've been on the cusp of oblivion and know what it takes to save the club 
And, you know, I, I look at Newcastle, for example, yeah. as a perfect example of that. They're riding the wave right now with this new owners that have got a total dodgy background and all that sort of stuff. And you think, right, where's that going to go? I look at Chelsea now, pre-Abramovich, like the guy wants to play North and South All-Star games. It seems a bit of a absolute mental case. Mm-hmm. And you think, you know, we've we've seen in the rabbit hole and we know what it's like to be minutes away from losing your football club. I've also been to the massive highs of actual... Imagine a football club in Scotland does win the league that isn't Celtic Rangers. Mm-hmm. You know, we glorify Celtic and Rangers triumphs in Scotland as if we should almost be proud of them or it's something that we should be dead happy to be about. You know, we glorify 10 in a row and you think, actually, what a damning indictment that is for your game where we are. Yeah, Celtic and Rangers deserve it because they're, they're brilliantly run clubs and massive clubs, etc. But the truth is, in three years' time, it's going to be 40 years, 40 years since anybody outside the Celtic Rangers won the league. Yeah. Like, that's mad. And especially this week, we've just signed a TV deal that does no favours for anybody. We've got infighting all the time. This 11 to 1 vote where no one can change. We'll never change Scottish football. Never, mm. ever, ever. Because yeah, totally agree. Celtic and Rangers will look after themselves and everybody else will feed off the scraps at that table. Like, look at Dave Cormack at Aberdeen. Like, he couldn't be any further away from what the actual Aberdeen fans think. Their yeah. owners in the press backing up Doncaster, backing up the deal, and the fans are going, wait a minute, that's a terrible deal. We didn't want that. And so we've been, we've kind of been there. We've, lads, we've been to the massive highs where, you know, we almost almost done the unthinkable and it just you know it was just one too crazy crazy step too much and and too much paranoia and we batter Vladimir Romanov with that but actually when you scratch beneath the surface squash football is a basket case anyway like do you know what I mean it was <laughs> the cra- it's the craziest league in the world there's things that happen in this league that will never happen anywhere else and Vlad was probably just too idealistic and too eager to change the world straight away and then lost sight of what was happening on the pitch and just started picking fights left, right and centre and ultimately just got bored. Liam, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for going back in this time with me. I hope it wasn't too painful. No, no, it was like you said, two cups, two Scottish cups, split the old forum, Champions League football. Yeah, it wasn't that bad. Brilliant. Thank you very much, mate. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Thank you very much, everyone who's tuned in. Please join us on the next episode as we will look back on Aberdeen's 1983 Miraculous Cup Winners Cup winning campaign. Thanks very much, everyone. We'll see you soon. Cheers. Cheers.